0: Welcome to What's Your Beef, a Beef Australia production. Each week, we will introduce you to people living and working in the beef community, and some of the characters that help deliver the iconic triannual event. Hello, and welcome to What's Your Beef. I'm Jane Cuttahie. Our industry representatives are extraordinary people. Not only are they more often than not running their own businesses and being involved in local organisations but they dedicate precious hours advocating on behalf of all producers, often at the expense of their own business and time with family and friends. Don Heatley has spent decades advocating for the beef industry and representing growers across the world. His passion for the beef industry stems from his childhood spent in the paddocks of a North Queensland grazing business though the drive to venture into the world of agri-politics was ignited by a talkback radio session on an industry issue not relating to his everyday, It really just got him thinking. Not all of his interactions have been positive. In fact, nothing could have prepared him for the extremely personal interactions with growers, politicians and industry he faced following the Australian government's decision to halt live export trading in 2011, when he was the president of MLA. And we need to warn you that in this conversation, Don and I do discuss suicide, so please be conscious of that before you continue. Now, Don, you grew up in the Home Hill region as well, didn't you?
1: No, actually, I grew up in the Charter Stowers area.
0: All the good ones do, actually, grow up in the Charter (laughs) Towers area, don't they?
1: (laughs) That's right, yeah. No, Virginia Park was was first base for... For myself and family, well, well, for my parents and me, at least, yeah. So uh, then we, oh, we did have pop- property down a, a place down here in the Burdekin at the time, and uh, uh, then when we sold Virginia Park, we moved, um, we moved down here to Burn Valley, which is where we've been for the last sixty years, yeah. So and bought the place next door to Leichhardt Downs, yeah.
0: You've been known as an innovator within the industry f- for many years, just with, with your. Adoption or early adoption of technologies such as Lucina. When people say that to you, is is that how you uh, consider yourselves as beef producers? I
1: don't know, Jane. I think there's a lot of people out there all trying to find you know good and better ways to do things, and and I suppose if you've got that interest and a bit of passion for it, um, you know it it sort of tends to flow naturally, I suppose. But I mean, oh, look, I don't know whether people see see us that way I mean it's for us it's a family operation and we've been that way forever I mean personally I've always been interested in r and D. I think if you stand still and just keep on doing what somebody else always has always done you, you're gonna lose ground very quickly and in this day and age you, you're going backwards if you're standing still aren't you and Yeah. You, so you just got to keep on keep on moving and keep doing things giving them a try and uh, and I suppose that's you know that's pretty much what we've done. I mean, it's been a, it's an interesting journey. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. So you and so I suppose you're in a position where you take advantage of what you've tried to do that works. And you you reconcile with the fact that if something doesn't work, well, other people will see it and understand it and not do it themselves, and and you'll just you just got to move on. Yeah. So you're
0: going to take one for the team. You're going to make them the the mistakes for everyone. But it is that natural curiosity is something really really special. You know, you've had many roles, which we'll get into. But how have you encouraged other people to? And other producers to take note of what's around them and, and what's available.
1: It's an interesting question, you know. I mean, that if you if you took it right back to basics and said, uh, take it away from being a personal thing and look at extension generally, you know, in the industry and extension in R and i I'm talking about. I mean, it's been a challenge forever, you know, to try to have the industry, uh, whose a portion of their levy money is spent on uh, research and development, to have them. Uh, take up more of that R&D has been a battle. I don't think anybody's completely won it at all for the last 40 or 50 years, but it doesn't matter which way you cut it in any industry. There are always those who are prepared to give things a go and maybe they're seen as the innovators. Uh, They're slightly more successful because they do things that, that work and make them more money or whatever. So I suppose, you know, taking it back to a family situation, I mean, I, we, I've, I mean, within our own family, I've always tried to, you know, my sons are, are heavily involved in the industry or well, not the industry, but the business, I should say. And, and I've always tried to encourage them to keep thinking about the different ways you can do things. And, and it's always about trimming cost out of your business, but never losing sight of the fact that if you focus endlessly on, on, on cost and cost cutting, productivity generally starts to sort of fade away. And um, you know you've got to have both working in tandem. I think you've got to have cost cutting, but you've got to have productivity. It's got to be the end game, Joan. And know.
0: sometimes productivity costs money, so you can't just, you can't be completely lean on inputs.
1: Absolutely, and I think that that nails the issue. You know, on a broader sense, um, within well, many families uh within the industry generally. You know, I mean, we've been we've been giving Lakina a good run now for the last twenty two three years whatever it is and um we've found out a lot of things that out of the you know the expense came from our back pocket as to you know what made it work what made, what you know what didn't work and i think the big thing is a lot of people are ah they're they're, they're worried about the, the expense of doing something new um if a bank manager's knocking on your door yes i, I can i can completely understand that but uh, mm. at the end of the day i i think the industry you know if you're going to keep going in the industry you've got to keep pace with it to a certain degree don't
0: when you were a kid and and finishing school and, and thinking about what you were going to do what about the beef industry really piqued your interest and made you want to make this your career That's
1: a good question I suppose if you take it right back to basics if you know you're like many of us are you you're born and raised in the bush so it's just there in front of you all the time some people take it on some people don't for for whatever the whatever the reasons but I mean well I'm what am I I'm the fifth generation of our family uh, in the industry and I've loved every minute of it I mean it's been very very tough at times and and other times, extremely rewarding. But I guess, I suppose, you know, you could you, you could get all teary eyed and say the first the first horse your father ever gave you is something you know very precious in the industry, I believe. And you and it it you know it's it's an encouragement to be there and stay there and, and have involvement. Uh, so I suppose for me, I, I clearly remember the day. I remember the name of the horse, and uh, and and that you know had me interested, it had me it, it was just a greater hook, I suppose. But then you get past that stage where you leave school or college, whatever, and then you start to make up your mind is it well, is it really for you? And I just never ever had any doubts about it, to be frank. <laughs> I loved I loved every bit of it. Yeah.
0: Well that's yeah, that's that's a beautiful thing, really, isn't it, when you do love every bit of it. And I think, you know, you not only went forward with your own business and, you know, taking on a lot of, of different ideas and and um, innovations within that, but also on an industry level. So, when did you start, and what was the catalyst for for becoming involved in organisations such as the Cattle Council uh, and AgForce?
1: Look, the short answer would be, Jane. We have some um, great neighbours, great friends next to us here, the Ray the Ray family. There are you know there are many. Uh, Branches of the Ray family in in Queensland slash Australia. But um, Bob Ray, uh, not with us any longer, but he was at Kirkney when we first came to Burn Valley. He encouraged me to come in, become involved, I suppose, in the agri politics, if you could call it that, of the industry, and encouraged me to sort of put my hand up and take on some positions there, which I did. But I suppose one of the catalysts, if you could call it that, for me that just really got up my nose was, was uh, I can remember we were, we were in the meat house at home cutting up a bullock that particular morning and I was listening to, uh, I think it was the ABC morning session, and, uh, and I, I was listening to a person from the, the AMIU, Australian Meat Industry Employers Union, saying that they just had to get rid of this live export industry. And I mean, you know, we're bullock producers, have been forever. But I thought to myself, you know, if you want to kill off part of our industry, then then the whole industry will suffer. And if you look at, you know, northern Australia, it is heavily, very heavily reliant on live exporting. And I just thought, I cannot sit back and just listen to this and do nothing about it. So I, I sort of put down the tools and, and went, went to the phone and, uh, you know, with beef and grease all over my hands, got on the phone to the ABC and said, you know, I want to have my say. It's, I, I didn't hold an industry position, but I wanted to have my say as a person in the industry about what this particular person was saying. And I suppose that certainly got me heavily, heavily involved in the live export industry. And again, we're bullet producers. But I just knew that if you, if you cut one piece away like that or damage it, uh, then, you know, the damage flows across the nation. And I think 2011 was a living, breathing example of that one. When the trade was uh, suspended for a period of time, Jane. Well, I was
0: actually going to, to ask you about that a little bit later on because that was while you were chair of MLA, and I, you know, the irony is not lost that that's the live export is what sparked your interest in in agri politics, and of course that that came later. Um, and I will ask you a, about that, but I, I think we're skipping a few steps in the meantime. So when you know you made that phone call, you obviously. Um, got picked up by you know tapped on the shoulder to, to come and and represent the industry a little bit more what was that what was that like that transition from doing your own business you know cutting up bullocks and whatever else that you were doing to representing you know even a part of the industry that wasn't necessarily your every day had you been involved with groups and that sort of thing before or was this really was your first foray and, into committees and and that kind of representation
1: Oh, but yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, some minor, some minor excursions around the, you know, forays around the edges here and there on different things, but you know, nothing like the industry, uh, the industry positions. And I suppose that that was part of the catalyst. I mean, you know, you start to you start to get not that I intended it by any means whatsoever. Uh, but you end up with a, something of a profile in the media. I mean, you, you're you're fully aware in your position how oh, that yeah. works. And, yes, and you get and, a little
0: little mark next to your name as good talent, and then they just don't stop ringing. <laughs>
1: I do remember, yeah, Jane Tatterson saying, "Oh, you're good talent." Yeah, I didn't even know what she meant to be frank, but, uh, but yeah, that, uh, could
0: be, that could come across as quite terrible, could not it?
1: <laughs> yeah, but but I sort of, you know, yeah, look, I, I mean, I became involved, and I mean, it was it was more about the, you know, the issues for the industry and all sorts of things. You know, there are there are many and varied, and they change as the years go by. But I mean, I sort of started with the our local branch of Central Northern Graziers, which was, you know, part of the one of the district associations of the old UGA at the time, and Longreach was our centre and uh, our office centre at least. And then, you know, you if, you if you sort of did the right thing there, or not did the right thing, but if you got things done sufficiently well there, you were asked to go and sort of carry the mantle at the likes of the UGA State Council, and it went into Cattle Council and... Um, and so yeah and along the way you end up doing a whole host of other things you know that that are all involved or all revolve around issues and things that are going on in the industry at the time so i suppose you know they were they were the they were the the, the large steps if you put it that way Jane and MLA is a different is a different um, you know kettle of fish altogether, but um So And then after Cattle Council, I was on MLA, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's right. I do want to ask you a couple of things before we get to MLA because what you just rattled through is is a lot of time. Like it's a lot of time away from the business and your family and everything else. You have a family, you run a family business, they're, you know, very significant uh, commitments anyway. How did you marry that balance or how did that balance work when you are away from home a lot of the time with the young family um, and with, you know, your own stuff to, to continue?
1: Well, I mean, look, it's never easy. And I suppose the thing that, you know, that I think anybody who's done it before or after me, uh, something similar, will know that you can't do it just on your own. It may feel that way at times, but 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 you, you really rely very heavily on your family. And I suppose at, a, at an early stage, Um, you rely very heavily on your, on your family in particular, you know, your parents, um, uh, and that it's a, it's a heavy load doing the job yourself because you spend so much time away, uh, from home and that's tough on your family and tough on your business. In my early stages, you know, when I left home and I'm talking 30, 40 years ago, you know, my father was around and, and you, and you had, um, and you had a lot more men on properties in those days than you do these days. Mm. And so life went on. But as, as the years went by, you know, you went away and you probably went away from home more, but you had less people at home to rely on simply because, the, you know, the cost of running a business. And so consequently, you became very adept at organising, uh, spent a lot of time on the phone late at night, um, you know, looking after your own business and quite a few sleepless hours doing it that way but at the very at the end of it the nub of it all is Joan. you rely very heavily on family and they uh you know wives and children my children are quite young in those days but you know you rely so heavily on wives uh to just keep things ticking along for you and oftentimes we don't we don't mention them and recognize them for the for the, um, the huge support that they uh, they give you while you're doing those particular jobs
0: yeah, absolutely, and I, I hear that quite often too. And I guess they have to be, your, your partners do have to be on board to a degree, don't they? They have to kind of have that belief in what you're doing, otherwise that can get really arduous.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I've seen situations where partners of the person who is away a lot may not be particularly... Um, fond of the idea that that's all going on and they're, they're sort of carrying the flame while you're away. And, and, and if they don't want to do that, you know, you yourself, the individual is probably better off not, not being away
0: comes back to priorities, doesn't it? Yeah.
1: That's right. Yeah, you can't do it without you can't do it without that support, and uh, it's just it's just so important to have it. Yeah.
0: So now you took on a, a role with on the MLA board, and that was you know you mentioned before it is a completely different kettle of fish to your other industry roles to to date. Why? How how is it different to to the other roles?
1: Um. Well, I, I suppose the what would you say the key the key word uh which is still to, even to this day is still not entirely well understood by the industry but mla is a research and development corporation it is a board uh well in my case i was on the board and it is not an industry representative body and many people still think it is you know mla uh, takes transaction levies from you know sheep, goats, and cattle, and um, and and at the end of the day, people think if you're paying money, then you should have representation. The representation comes from the uh, the or the state farm organisations, the, the cattle council of Australia, the the peak bodies, the peak councils like them. Whereas MLA is a board, and it is there to carry out the policy of the industry, and so you find yourself in a position where you know it's as it's as busy as all as all hell. It's just you know it is really a very busy position, but it's not a representative position. And sometimes you got to step back and 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 let people see that and let and explain it to them because they think they think that's what it is, but, but it's not. As you so, say,
0: that's that's a conversation I know I have a lot of the time or hear a lot of the time even now. So what's what's happened or what hasn't happened to, to have that kind of misunderstanding for decades.
1: Oh, uh, I don't know, Jane, to be honest. I, I think it's always been there up to a point. There's no denying the fact that I think part of the reason is, is that in, in I don't know where you start and finish, but I, I mean, let's pick a figure and say in the last 10 to 20 years, maybe more like the last 20, industry representation has changed. And it goes back to that question you asked earlier about, you know, how do things, how do things work when you're away from home? I remember when I first ever started travelling a lot. You know, you always had, you know, father and and parents and whatever brothers, sisters, uh, manpower. The business kept on going. Nowadays, it is and and so representation for you, the individual, representing your industry, was nowhere near as difficult. But but nowadays, I mean, you know, we all know it. We 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 run probably larger businesses than we ever did, with a fraction of the staff that we ever did. And therefore it becomes really difficult for people who have a who have a desire or find themselves in a position of representing the industry, it's really difficult for them to spend large amounts of time away from home. And so and that structure, right from grassroots level, has flowed all the way to the all the way to the top to the likes of Cattle Council Australia. And consequently all state farm organizations struggle to you know to be able to have people representing them and supporting them uh on a, on a regular basis they're there but it's not it's not easy anymore or not as easy as it probably was so yeah that I think that's that's the that's the difference and people sort of look at it and say well you know Mla takes my levy therefore it's my representative well actually it's not and and the minister doesn't see it that way either and Consequently, you know, you, you find yourself in the firing line um, at MLA because people don't fully understand exactly what it's about. And I'm not criticising people for that. No. It's just the way it is. And yeah. it's just been that way for a long time. Yeah.
0: Yeah, no, I'd, I'd agree with that. So, and I guess understanding the difference and understanding, really, did you actually, did you understand what that meant when you took on a, a board role that you would have to have, you know, there was still that. Level of angst within the industry towards the organisation that you would have to step back and sort of remember what your role was.
1: Oh yeah, look, I, I mean, I mean, I, I'm I was fortunate, I suppose. You know, I'm I, I've I've got skin in the game. You know, yeah. if, you could, if you could put it that way, <laughs> if you got skin in the game, it's a whole lot easier for you to understand. And and I was probably very fortunate in that I you know I hadn't sort of jumped from. From you know uh, being Don Heatley cow producer to a board member of MLA, I, so, yeah, I, you were I, educated. I've been you a had, lot of you've done your along. research. <laughs> that's right, yeah, yeah and I've been involved through all the other steps, and I suppose I understood what I was getting into, Jane, if yeah. that's the question. Yeah,
0: yeah, no, I I wouldn't doubt that. I just wanted to double check. When you took on the the chair role, how did how did that change? Did you because you said already said that it's a very busy role? You run a busy business the chair's a massive job.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, moving from a a non-executive director position to chair, yeah, it's a it's a quantum leap I suppose. It, it's it's a very very busy role. I mean, you could you could if you chose play the role of a very corporate chairman and you can you could fly into a meeting in Sydney or wherever and do that meeting and on a plane and out of there again, you know, that night or the next morning, whatever. If you chose to do it that way, then that is the way corporate structure technically operates. I've always said in all my time, particularly at MLA, that MLA, yes, it's governed by all the rules of corporate governance that the likes of BHP is. But at the end of the day, it is a people company. It is about the industry, but the industry is made up of people. And I always held the view that it is vitally important that people be able to talk to you, see the whites of your eyes, have your, have my mobile number, be able to you know confront you about different things. And my view was that from a from a chairman's role at MLA, I always reckoned if there was a difference between that and the role of a very, very corporately structured organization. And hence my view was I always wanted to make myself as available as possible to the industry Slash the people in the industry uh, at all times, Jane. If if that if that makes any sense, yeah. yeah no,
0: it does. And and it, we were going to talk about networks a little bit more. And I think what you just said really leads leads into that. But I do just want to dwell on that moment for a minute because, as we said before, you know, live export really sparked your interest in, in becoming in um, a rural representative, a- and then of course the 2011 live export ban sparked by animal cruelty claims came as your time as chairman uh, of MLA. So can you just explain a little bit about what that event meant to you in that particular role?
1: Well, it meant a lot of sleepless nights. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, did you,
0: you, you wouldn't have slept. But like, as you say, you're not an industry – MLA is not an industry rep- representative but, of course, that's where everybody was looking for um, action, so
1: That's yeah, no, no, and and rightly so. I mean, if you if you go right back to the the genesis, I mean the the whole the whole issue surrounded uh, animal welfare or the lack of it. Uh, MLA's MLA's, you know, logo was on the restraining box up there in Indonesia.
0: Who was the first phone call when this story broke and you like this was happening? Who called you first? Oh. You don't
1: know, there were so many. Yeah, I mean they just, the phone, literally, and I mean that literally the phone didn't stop for for, for days at the early in the piece, you know, people just were frantically trying to understand what what had happened and what was going to happen And, and of course nobody really knew the answer. We knew what had happened but we were battling to try to figure out what the next moves were going to be and they were... They were very unclear um, for any number of reasons, but particularly because the government had hadn't, really hadn't made its position clear at the time, and uh, the minister we were dealing with, I, I, I don't think compassion is at the top of uh, the top of his list when it came to the industry, to be honest. And uh, I, I think he just saw it as something that he was going to do, and and the industry paid the consequences for it, and probably still is. But uh, I, I think, to be honest, Jane, I mean, when the the event itself, there was a there was a sniff that something would happen. Nobody knew exactly when, uh, but there was a sniff out there in the in the wider world that something was going to happen. I was in Japan at the time. Uh, we were dealing with the the process of slowly but surely, early days, establishing the free trade agreement with Japan, uh, and probably. Uh, the call that I received first was um, from David Palmer, who was the managing director of MLA at the time. And David David just said, look, you're going to have to get back to Australia. And um, so consequently, that's what I did, which I fully expected I would have to. And then I, I spent the next... Two weeks, you know, living in it, living out of a suitcase, and then subsequent months um, just endlessly travelling. So, um, yeah, that was it in a nutshell at the very beginning, Jane. Yeah,
0: yeah, and what a nutshell it is! Did you expect? No, you said that there was a sniff of something, but no one really knew what was going to happen. Did you expect it would be a full blown ban?
1: The answer to the first part: Did I expect? Um, Look, the expectation would be that if it was that if it was animal welfare and and not knowing what it was going what was going to be shown what the footage would be but you'd have to expect that it wasn't going to be good and consequently the best thing to do was make as much preparation with very little information that you possibly could as an industry slash a company like MLA so that you could cover bases before the story broke but it's very 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 difficult no circumstances and so um, did I know? No, I didn't. I knew, as, I knew as much or as little as everybody else. And, and so we, had to, we just had to handle it once, once the story became, or once it broke and was out there, Joan. And, uh, and it was, you know, nobody condoned. You know, you've heard me and many others say that a million times. You know, the industry, MLA, nobody condoned the animal cruelty that happened at that particular time and the industry's taken leaps and bounds past all that nowadays, but you just, you just don't know what was going to happen. So uh, uh, it it was a, it was a, it was a tough gig. And I mean, you know, when you've got animal welfare and you've got, you've got an issue as, as in your face as that one was, and you've got uh, a journalist who, you know, uh, was eventually awarded a Walkley for sending many people broke um that you know that made it a very very tough uh, confrontational issue and trying to get the confrontation out of it was you know the most difficult thing early early in the piece yeah
0: and the the emotion because you know at the end of the day too you're a cattle producer and you can see what this means for the industry and your peers and then as you say things things like uh, the award for the story that had such wide repercussions on uh, any number of, of people. How do you balance that as a as a person that takes it that takes an extraordinary um, constitution? Well. <laughs>
1: Yeah, look, I suppose, you know, the, it wasn't just me. I was surrounded by a whole lot of really good people who were doing their utmost, uh, particularly at MLA, Cattle Council, the like, everybody trying to figure out a solution to this situation and dealing with dealing with uh, a government who you'd have to say wasn't all that friendly and a minister the same. And so consequently, um, how do you deal with it? I mean, look, you just got to knuckle down and just keep working and trying to find the solution. And I suppose one of the things that I found the most difficult was the fact that, you know, as an industry, we, we were being eaten alive on the front page of virtually every mainstream uh, media source in the country at the time. And we we couldn't get traction. We couldn't get our story out there. And that was really, that was very, very hard to put up with and very hard to manage to try to get that traction and also you've got people who are you know being sort of basically burnt up in this process there are those who are working like hell to resolve it but also you've got the media out there throwing grenades at you whatever way you looked and the one thing to this day that I will always you know I will always hold some some members of the media, in total contempt for their complete and utter lack of understanding of what it did to the industry, and as I said earlier, it's about the people. And I mean, you know, you know, when I, when, as chairman of the of MLA at the time, you know, when you're sitting, if you may be at home or anywhere, but calls in the middle of the night, and people ring you saying, you know, I'm seriously. Thinking that I can't keep going, and you know they were they were talking about they were talking about you know ending lives. Yeah, suicide. that, That is a terrible, terrible thing for for people to be put in that position and to have a minister slash a government and probably journalists who just never ever gave any contemplation to the fact that this was part and parcel of what they were. What they were causing and probably what they were doing was fueling it. And but it, you couldn't you couldn't get them to understand that. And it you know it is what it is. But I tell you, I took several calls like that. No, they, they're not a lot of fun. They no, really aren't.
0: Not at all. And again, that comes back to the human aspect too. And um, mm. you know that's a really incredible job that you did for many reasons. And um, I think we might leave. We'll leave it there, Don, and move on to to other things. But um, I really appreciate your candidacy.
1: No, no problem.
0: So I do want to ask you, you know, you, you you've moved away from from those larger roles but are still incredibly active in the industry and um, I've heard you speak at a couple of of uh, events when you're talking about the power the power of a network. And I guess after a career in in so many roles, you've amassed quite a good one. So when you are talking to to people about the power of a network, what what, what do you mean?
1: I, I was very, very fortunate in the sense that it, I became involved in the in the agri politics of the industry and uh, and uh, the R and D uh, and marketing and promotion through MLA, all those things that make up the industry. I was I was very, very fortunate that I had a lot of exposure to that over a lot of years, and mm-hmm. consequently, with you know, it, it, it just happens that you you build a network. Just happens, it, it builds around you. Uh, not around you, but it builds because that's what you're doing. You're talking to people all the time. You've got issues, so you resolve them. And you, when in resolving an issue, you sometimes you become very friendly with people. Sometimes you don't. But at the end of the day, you end up having spoken to a lot of people in your life, and consequently, that's you know that's where my network uh, comes from. Obviously, you've got your business and your business network, but I, I, I suppose. I I always think of a network as something that is just it's just absolutely vital. If you have got the opportunity to build a network, uh, do so. If you've got positions such as I've had that help you do that, well, that's just that's more you know more benefit for you. But at the end of the day, never forget that a network is about making life a whole lot easier and simpler. Uh, solving problems, solving issues, being able to pick up a phone and say to somebody, look, I got this going on. What do you think? You know, because you think that they might be able to help you. Even if they can't, nine times out of ten, they can say, look, I can't do that, but I do know somebody who can. And that's the power of a network. It lets you get jobs done, problems solved. Jane, so. I hope I've described my thoughts well enough to you there.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, so I'm always curious about this particular aspect, though, is when you, you know, are compelled to have a robust conversation with with some people but they might be in a role that you kind of need, you know, for either your work or you know that will be useful as a person in your network. How do you weigh that up when you would really love to sort of, I guess, roundabout way of asking, how do you know when to burn a bridge and when not to?
1: Oh, well, I mean, sometimes it just happens. <laughs> <Sometimes>. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, we are sometimes. human after all. I? But I yes. guess, you know, as, as you move on and can appreciate, you move on in, in um, maturity, I guess, but y- yep. and you realise that, that people are so valuable in their relationships. Mm. You are going to burn some, but yep. is there are times where you actually have to just go, just shut up on this one and, you know, have that conversation another time.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, you know, probably two sides to it. There's the there's the there's the good side where networks or networking results in a in a good outcome for for everybody, uh, and you and they develop a, a friendship or a relationship, whatever that is beneficial to both parties. Um, I mean, and as you mentioned earlier, there comes a time sometimes when you've got a burnt bridge, and I mean. I personally don't enjoy doing something like that, and I've tried like hell not to. Uh, in most cases, but I mean, now and then you've just got to you've just got to throw the grenade in the room and get something finished and done and out of the road, uh, hopefully for the better. But you can't just let it keep on going and lingering on. And, and sometimes they're the difficult ones because, you know, you have you, made a decision that that's the way you see an issue and you reckon it should be resolved. Um, that, you know, you, you've got to be very confident in yourself, which some people are, to just throw the grenade in and say, I don't care, this has got to, this has got to be fixed or it's got to be stopped or whatever. And, and and people will do that, and sometimes it blows up in their face. Most times, if you've thought about it deeply enough, uh, you're probably going to end up on the wrong track with a few bruises along the way, but at the end of the day, that's what you've got to do. And, uh, yeah, I personally didn't get any joy out of doing much of that sort of stuff, and... Uh, Uh, But, you know, that's life, I think,
0: Jane. But at the same time, you can have some terrific conversations with people who don't agree with you. Like, you don't necessarily have to burn bridges to, to get an outcome. I think some of the most fascinating conversations I've ever had with people who are completely, believe almost opposite, have a completely opposite belief system to me. And it's not necessarily that you change the way that each other think but you give um, an insight into to how into why and I love those conversations you don't necessarily oh, have to blow them up no
1: no you're absolutely right and I think you know I mean the art the art form is 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 um is being able to conduct the conversation without losing your cool and, and, and everybody walks away smiling, you know. Mm. You, you still don't like the result. You still don't, may not like the person. Uh, but at the end of the day, you respect their position because they're representing themselves or a whole group of other people and, and, and they're being either paid to do it or voluntarily like many of us have. And, you, and you've got to respect that position because uh, it's not necessarily their personal position. It's the position of a group of people, whatever. And uh, yeah, I mean I think I think the most dangerous thing you can ever do when you go into various representational positions is is to think that when somebody challenges you, they they are challenging you personally. They're actually not. They're challenging your issue or your or your thought process or whatever. And and so consequently, when you when you get all hot under the collar because somebody throws the gauntlet down right in front of you you've lost already you, mm. you you've lost you've got to be able to manage then understand the fact that it's about the issue not the person which is you know it's a pretty old old saying and and so if important. you can do that you're you're <laughs> yeah. better off everybody's better off to be frank yeah yeah,
0: yeah. that's right when you look around at, at the various leaders um i guess in agri-politics i'm talking and and industry groups at the moment what's What's your hope for them? Like there's lots of issues being kicked around. As you say, you know, that not as many people are putting their hands up because of basically time and their own businesses. How do you see the future of some of these um, agri-political leadership roles?
1: I don't see them getting any easier than they ever have been, Jane. Uh, one of the big issues, I, I, I'm only repeating myself, is having people with enough time to put their hand up and, and take on these these roles and challenges um, is is difficult then, but not as much so. Uh, when I say then, is back when I got it first became involved, and then, but it's more so now. I I think sometimes you you got to take a really collective. The industry needs to take a collective position, step back from the sort of the 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 front of the fire, and say, you know, are we are we, as our agri-political representative structure, is it functional? Is it is it as good as it could be? Should we be doing something totally different? And, I mean, one of the things that I often thought about, and it, it just comes it comes because of, of the travel, um, and, again, MLA is not a representative body, but when I was travelling with MLA, the US, um, you know, they have a number of conferences each year, uh, one in particular, the International Livestock Conference in Denver. Don't know whether it still runs or not, but anyhow, it, it was pretty important. And the thing that I always learnt from that and then being at the MLA office in Washington, uh, in DC, was that the North American Cattlemen's Beef Association always used to take on uh, their political representation in a slightly different way, or their lobbying, if you could call it that, more so. Because they often and virtually always had a representative uh slash a lobbyist roaming around on the hill in in the seat of power in, in Washington, DC. And it was that person knew, understood, had writing instructions from their their the NCBA, and they would they would it would be five minutes around the coffee pot with Senator so-and-so and a one-second conversation in a lift with somebody else and and a dinner here and and a sitting beside somebody a representative or a political representative on a plane somewhere and that that was a, a regular part of the way they used to used to engage i suppose in a political sense and i've often thought you know whether or not we should do more of that in australia our biggest dilemma is we we're, we're only a population of you know i think we're about what, 24 million 24 and a half million something like that now and I mean, you know, you look at the American situation; it is totally different. It's sort of ten times that, and so consequently, just having the sheer human uh, manpower, the grunt, to to sort of get all these things done, is just not necessarily sitting there in front of us. But I sometimes wonder whether we need to step back, have a really good look and say, you know, uh, is our representative situation, uh, or is it is it too complicated? Um, you know, what do we do? Should we look at another model? Um, anyhow, I, I'm not saying that's what we... We must do. I'm just saying I've seen a few others and sometimes you you ask yourself the question, well, should we have a good look at that? Yeah.
0: Well, and I think what you're suggesting too is maybe be a bit more proactive than what we are. Like as an industry, as a beef industry, we, we can be quite reactive and wait for, for issues to, to pop up and then, you know, struggle, as you were talking about with the live export before, but struggle to get your story across, whereas some of those relationships, if they were built in the off-season and we're doing more proactive storytelling or, or, um, you know, promotion, maybe the, the, the bad issues wouldn't be so bad
1: yeah yeah no you're right and I mean look you know technically speaking if you look from a, the NFF, the National Farmers Federation I think Fiona Simpson does a, a, an amazing job where she is but Fiona's got a business to run and um, she and her husband are, are, are producers you know on the Liverpool Plains I mean they're they're as busy as anybody else is and at the end of the day you've got all the other organisations um, you know an NFF overarching, you've got MLA as an R&D corporation, but you've then got the peak councils, sheep cattle goats, et cetera. Um, and there's a lot of people bobbing up in front of ministers all the time with different issues. And, and I, I'm not saying you know I've got the formula right? I'm just saying that sometimes having one person or maybe one or two whatever it might need in front regularly in front of the people that we are trying to influence, on a very regular basis that may be more beneficial for us mm-hmm. and i don't i don't underestimate or criticize the work uh, that many people in the industry do they they do an enormous role been there done that myself and exactly. it takes a lot of time and dedication sometimes though you just got to say should the should we tweak the model i suppose is probably what i'm really driving at uh, Joan. Yeah.
0: yeah and that's that's very healthy to be thinking along those lines, um, mm-hmm. Don Healy, we—I think I've taken up enough of your time today, but it's been um, an absolute delight to speak to you. Thank you very much. What is your favorite cut of beef to cook on uh, just an everyday weeknight? I don't want fancy; I want you know something that you would cook for your family on a on an average weeknight.
1: If I if I had uh, my choice, it would be a rump. Mm-hmm. You know, with about half an inch of fat on, (laughs) (laughs) and 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 not you know, red meat is red meat, and I I I love I love red meat the way I like it cooked, and I like a rump because of its flavour. But I also like to have that bit of a you know that little bit of charring and a little bit of black around the edges. Yeah, that's what that's what I that's what I prefer the most, Joan. Yes,
0: and I can imagine I do. But then, as someone too who has been showcasing the red meat industry all over the world and I'm sure treated to many delicious dinners. What's the best way, other than the way that you cook your rum steak at home, that you've had beef presented to you?
1: I I think I would probably say in Japan and and Korea where if you take a cut that sometimes in Australia we it well, not so much anymore these days, but once upon a time, if you take brisket, and the way uh, Japan and Korea and there are other Asian countries do the same, but those come to mind because we've got such a relationship with them, and the, the likes of, you know, the, the shabu-shabu or that or that very thin-sliced, uh, and it's almost a barbecue, you know that, that barbecue method of cooking, but not the way not the way our barbecues are much smaller, centre of the table, uh, quick quick turning of the beef. High heat. Uh, I just I just that is just the most magnificent flavour that you can that you can have in beef and there we are with a what used to be a secondary cut it's, it's you know it's a wonderful it's a wonderful cut of beef and yeah I, I loved it I loved it that way in those two countries to be honest
0: uh perfect well I don't think there's actually not really anything like a secondary cut any, anymore I've never been I think I'm still very upset about the cost of oxtail. I feel like that cut. was <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I mean, you know, the, the living, breathing example is if you go go to the sheep the sheep meat industry, where nowadays uh, you know shanks and uh, the likes of, well lamb shanks, call them that. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, once upon a time you'd you'd throw them to the dogs, didn't you? Yeah, you know, <laughs> exactly. It was, just, it was dog tucker on the day that you you cut the you cut the sheep up or. Mm-hmm. Or cut up a beast, whatever. I mean nowadays they're the most magnificent. They're the most magnificent eating experience where, you know, you can pay forty dollars plus um, to sit in a restaurant and eat a eat a plate like that. Once upon a time, the dogs were happy to have it. It's just uh, incredible. Unfortunately,
0: isn't it? everyone's just learnt to cook. Perhaps
1: <laughs> that's. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm going to take the credit and say that MLA had a big part in that, Jane. Okay.
0: Dad. Well, well done, Don. You can take that one. on nothing to do with Master Chef. It was all MLA. Um... <laughs> Look, it was lovely to talk to you today. Thank you so much, and uh, we'll see you at Beef Twenty Four.
1: No worries. Thanks, Jane.
0: Thanks for listening. That was Don Heatley, a North Queensland grazier, and so much more. We'll have another episode of What's Your Beef in a Fortnight, so please hit subscribe if you want to hear more stories from our amazing Beef Australia community. I'm Jane Cudahy. Thanks for listening. You can hit subscribe to make sure you don't miss any of our episodes. And if you are enjoying listening to the show, we would appreciate a quick rating and review. Visit beefaustralia.com.au for more information on this great event.